0: Mercy and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I know that they're well intentioned. I'm sure that they're just trying to be helpful. I'm confident that their purpose is nothing more than to try to clarify God's Word and help us understand things a little bit more easily. And yet more and more, there are days in which I find myself wanting to take a bottle of correction fluid and cover all of those little section titles we find in our Bible translations. You know the ones I mean. Every few verses, there's a little heading that's inserted telling you what you're about to read in the verses that follow. Look in your own Bibles and I'm sure you'll find what I mean. Almost every popular translation and printing over the last few decades has them. And in some cases, they've even gone back and incorporated them into translations that have been around for centuries. Now, in most cases, these descriptions are accurate, and they do help break the text into smaller, more digestible chunks. They're helpful to us in rapidly finding certain topics upon the written page in the same way that the chapter numbers and the verse numbers are a systematic way of organizing and zeroing in on specific sections of the text. These headings, of course, though just like the numbering system, are not actually part of the Bible themselves. There are, you'll find, some sometimes unfortunate breaks in the text due to the chapter and the verse numberings, too. Breaks that can give us a false sense of the continuity of the topics and the ideas in God's Word. But at least the numbering system doesn't attempt to influence our interpretation of the text. Sometimes those headings have a tendency to do that. By breaking the narrative or the poetry into those convenient chunks and giving those chunks names of human origin, there's a chance that we will sometimes just sometimes, view the Bible a bit wrongly. We can start to see it as a series of isolated vignettes, an anthology of one-act plays or one-man shows. Worse still, it can also often be broken down into a collection of pithy wisdom sayings and inspirational words rather than being the overarching record of God's message of eternal and ongoing providence and salvation. Our gospel lesson for this eighth Sunday after the Epiphany runs this danger in many modern translations of the Bible. You see, most of them do insert a section title or heading in between the 24th and 25th verses of Matthew 6. That is the first two verses of our lesson today. This heading usually says something on the order of do not be anxious or do not worry. That's good advice to the believer to be sure, and it is a good summary of the text which follows. For here Jesus tells his hearers not to worry about food or clothing or the future. He tells them that such concerns are indications of a weakened faith, of having mixed up priorities. And what is sin after all but a lack of faith in God? and a demonstration of bad priorities over all of the things He gives us. We worry about so much in this world, and Jesus points to just a few of our many concerns here. In worrying about such things and in worrying about so much more, we question God's goodness, God's provision, and we show that our priorities are for the quickly fleeting comforts rather than for the lasting eternal joys. What's more, Jesus points out that our worries and our concerns accuse God of having His priorities mixed up too. Does God worry more about generously feeding the birds or beautifully clothing the flowers than He does about us, the crown of His creation? It seems we think so sometimes based on our behavior. That's why it's so important that we not let that artificial break between verse 24 and 25 lead us further astray. You see, verse 25 starts with a therefore from Jesus. He's drawing a conclusion for us. He's explaining why our understandings of His words ought to be taken a certain way. To break that conclusion off from the teaching of Jesus which precedes it would cause us to miss a key point That he was trying to make. And what was Jesus saying in the verses that precede his admonitions to take comfort and to not be anxious? He was saying the same things that he had been teaching them throughout this Sermon on the Mount that there is God's way and that there is man's way, and that God's kingdom provides the greater reward. We can serve the Lord or we can serve mammon a Semitic word which more or less encompasses all worldly wealth and possessions. That is, money and everything that money can buy. Jesus warns us that serving both of these gods is impossible. To put it mathematically, it's a mutually exclusive solution set, an either-or choice between two masters. We'll love one and hate the other, or will be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus says so. What's it going to be for you? The Creator or His creation? The heavenly giver or His earthly gifts? It's apparent by the way that we spend most of our time and effort that we have made that choice and that our lot has often been cast in the wrong direction. We worry and we fret so much about the things of this world that we feel compelled to apply the bulk of our time and the best of our efforts toward acquiring more and more of them. To quote a popular phrase of a few years ago, bigger, faster, better, more. It's interesting to note that in this section of Jesus' sermon, speaking about priorities and worries, it's following closely on the heels of him teaching his hearers the words of the Lord's prayer. That prayer, which we say so much and we seem to take heart so little, perfectly expresses a faith-driven surrender to God. In its own way, that prayer asks nothing more than that we allow God to be God and that we be conformed to his commandments and to receive all of the blessings that he has in store for us, both now and for eternity. The Lord's Prayer is the prayer of a faithful heart, one which sets aside the anxieties and the priorities of this life and lives trustingly in God's grace, receiving the food and the clothing and all of the other blessings that He will provide us according to His perfect will. What's more, it's the prayer of a heart that receives not only this world's blessings, but the blessings of the world to come. When Jesus tells His hearers not to engage in a battle between the masters of God and money, when He tells them not to worry about the things of this world, He's simply telling them to live the Lord's Prayer. He's reminding them that ultimately it is God and not their money that provides them their daily bread of food and clothing, of all that we need to support this body and life. Yet the prayer and Jesus' elaboration of it here in today's text go far beyond just satisfying our physical needs of this life, don't they? And not only far beyond, but they actually precede, preempt, and overshadow these shallow and temporary needs. That's where faith takes over. You see, everyone, to a certain extent, actually does worry about the things of this life. Maybe it's not food or clothing because God may have provided you an abundance of His created gifts of mammon so that these things are not a concern to you on a daily basis. But much of the world is not so fortunate. So there's something both for you to give thanksgiving to God for and to give consideration for your neighbor. But at some point, on some level, you do have plenty to worry about, don't you? Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's whether or not you'll be able to get a job or keep a job or hang on to one or more jobs long enough to retire. Maybe it's whether or not you'll have enough in the checking account to pay the rent or the mortgage this month or have enough stocked away over time to have daily bread and clothing once your working life draws to a close. Maybe you worry about how your kids will go out into the world. Maybe you'll worry how your parents will go out of it entirely. And maybe your biggest worry is what sort of impression you're making on others with your own worries and your own priorities. There's no end to the list that you could generate of things to worry about today, tomorrow, and for the rest of your life. It would be a constantly churning, continually growing list. Some things on it would be significant and other things would be trite. Some would be reasonable and some would be neurotic. Yet, making that list is an exercise in futility, because no matter what you do, there's always going to be something else to worry about. Jesus understood our concerns as well as the futility of constantly focusing on them when he told his hearers, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. That is, piling one worry on top of another uh, another worry is pointless. For another one is always around the corner, waiting. Much like sin is always crouching at the door looking for an opportunity. Or the devil is constantly prowling looking for someone to devour. In fact, that's exactly what all your anxieties and your worries are. They are products of the devil. They are enticements to focus on what you fear, what you love, and what you trust. Whatever it is that you fear, love, and trust, more than you do in God. They are the devil, the worlds, and your own weak flesh is coaxing, coaxing you to forget the Lord's prayer, forget the Lord's providence, forget the Lord's promises, forget the Lord Himself. Repent. Repent of your divided mind and heart, flitting constantly between God and mammon. Repent of your worry about food and drink and clothing and span of life and all of the rest of those things which are there in the daily bread that your heavenly Father knows full well that you need. Do you think that you are the one who needs to remind God of who He is and all that He does? Repent of this as well. But repent most earnestly and most humbly and unceasingly that you do not seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. For it is in this that your greatest danger lies. As Jesus said, in seeking and receiving God's kingdom and God's righteousness, all of those other things about which you worry will be addressed in God's own way. For it is not in wanting and seeking the things of this world that make you unique in God's sight. That wanting and that seeking simply lump you in with everyone else. For we know from our understanding of God's Word that He gives daily bread to everyone, yes, even to the evil people, without our prayers. And we further know that His gifts of worldly things, just like His gifts of eternal things, are given to us only out of His fatherly and divine goodness and mercy, apart from any worthiness or merit on our part. No, you are most precious to God on account of that gift which He has given you above all other gifts the gift of the righteousness of Christ Jesus, bestowed upon you in cleansing water and in bleaching blood, the stain of your sin, the rebellion of your worry, the hatred of your devotion in seeking mammon apart from the kingdom of God, all of these are fully removed for Jesus' sake alone. And in comparison to the implications and the dangers of not having that righteousness in your possession, All of the worries and anxieties about everything else you might have ought to fade away to nothing. But you do have that righteousness. It is your possession, a gracious gift from your true Master, the One who loves you even when you hate Him, the One who is devoted to you even when you despise Him, the One who serves you even when you serve the gods of this world. He feeds the birds who don't plant or harvest, or scheme to get their neighbor's inheritance or house. He clothes in glory the lilies who don't fret or strive or chase after brass rings or golden parachutes. Think of it. Your worth to God so far and greatly surpasses the value of all the rest of His creation that He shed His own precious blood to feed you His forgiveness, to dress you with His divinity. That is why we can repent of our divided loyalties between the masters of God and worldly things. That is why we can set aside our anxieties about what we value in life. He alone has given us our value. It doesn't depend on what we have earned or what we have accumulated. Our true worth depends entirely upon what we have been given and also that which we can give to others. The good news that we have a Heavenly Father who knows what we truly need and what we will truly need. The Gospel assurance of Jesus that He has provided all of this and more to us in more than full strength, sufficient both for this life and for the life to come. All of your tomorrows rest securely in the Kingdom of God. Your value is in Christ Jesus. Your glory is in His cross. And your little weak faith is magnified and made perfect in His righteousness. May it ever be so for Jesus' sake. Amen.